0: The title of this evening's talk is Papancha. I'll explain later. I'd like to start with another um, poem, a prologue poem from Rumi, often read. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase, each other, doesn't make any sense. So the loose translation of Papancha is um, Proliferation, complication, compulsion, and um, that's what I want to talk about tonight. Um, I'm kind of rearranging
1: uh,
0: my talk right now as I sit here because I can. I'm noticing that I've lost my voice to a certain degree, and I am in the um, the process of being. Um, what you could, what I could call under the weather, uh, interesting identity under the weather. <laughs> and as I was sitting here, uh, feeling that and recognizing it, I remembered, um, as I have other times over the years when I'm under the weather, um, I remembered visiting a teacher named H.W.L. Punja in India. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. I visited him in India many, many times, and uh, but early, my first visit with him was back in 1990. And I arrived to meet him one evening, and I was already starting to feel kind of delirious and out of it I was I just traveled six hours on this uh, treacherous cat and mouse drive from uh, New Delhi to the town of Hardwar and very spaced out and getting getting quite sick and so I really went down for the count and really had it every opening was releasing and, <laughs> and uh, high fever etc and and he got wind that I was um, sick and sent over food and and uh, big chunks of cheese for some reason.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so I went through whatever that that drama was of being being uh, sick, and of course that doesn't that kind of drama of being sick it it's potentially uh very dangerous, but it's not it's not the i wasn 't given a um, a um, a terminal diagnosis or anything, but nevertheless i i was i became very busy being sick and without really being aware of it uh, i had gotten i had formed a a huge identity around being under the weather and so i fu- I started to feel a little bit better and i I decided to go to the meeting, the what's called satsang, where you get together with the teacher. And there were just about six of us there at the time. And, and it was very intimate. And I, so I just dragged my body there, took my body for a walk, and had to go along several bridges along the Ganges River. And each one I felt like I was just dragging along. And then I crossed over the bridge. And, and I was just, you know, weak and tired and sick. And on my way to see the teacher, and it, oh, I always remember this when I tell the story, I decided to buy some bananas and actually make an offering of some bananas, but also buy some for myself. I thought it would give me some food, some sustenance. And as I was walking down the little lane to the place where he was on the second floor of this little house, some monkeys jumped <laughs> out of the tree and stole my bananas.
1: <laughs>
0: and so it was, it was all high drama, and I finally made my way into the, um, into the teacher's quarters and sat at his feet, as people did, and was quite happy to be there on one hand. And, and his first question to me was, how are, you, how are you feeling? Naturally, he was very caring, and he sent me cheese. for <laughs> Anyway, he asked me how I was feeling. And I said, I'm, I'm feeling better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me very intently, and he said, where is sick? And in a, in a flash of recognition, or, and something opened, and I realized I couldn't find sick. That sick was this overlay that had been embellished with, with, um, with a whole story, not so much about... Um, about the immediacy of what was happening but a story of the imaginary one who lives in my mind who was quite a lot more dramatically sick than what the immediate symptoms were and and in that moment of having that identity popped that bubble released there was a, a sense of vitality that came forward and I realized just a small, in a small way, how the extent to which th- these little views about ourselves, even when the outer symptoms would seem to warrant such a, such a, um, a conventional view of ourselves, how if this is taken for a ride, if it's embellished, if it's expanded upon, if it proliferates, uh, it can become this imaginary drama of the imagined one. And it's just not so. So I I have whatever's going on right now, but I'm I'm asking myself again and again, where is sick? (laughs) So any of you who have have that as an identity, I know it's a little bit of a risk to um, at the risk of not really of feeling like it's your symptoms or your predicament is not being respected. I ask you, where is sick? On present evidence. And what that may point out to you is that there is quite a difference between the actuality, the moments of experience, and whatever our story is. So I have a lot of confidence that you have um, been making regardless of these various different identities that show up and sometimes blind us to our true nature, that you've been probably slowly moving, whether you knew this or not, from the narrow vortex of the, what I'll call the self-preoccupation, which is the, the what we show up on a retreat with, a kind of contraction of the heart and body, and a very, quite narrow. And you've probably moved slowly from that narrow vortex to a wider wider sense of yourself, uh, the wider vortex of the Dharma, the sense of openness, the sense of accepting, the sense of having more moments where you're simply aware and there's just the knowing that you're sitting here. And that's probably, at least in this moment, taking less effort than it, than it seemed like it did before. And Like, how much effort does it take to be aware right now? And What happens if I say, stop being aware? Look at how spontaneous and natural that sense of awareness is, and you probably have more of a sense that of of using everything that's happening, slowly, slowly, as we've been putting, you know, putting the message out, and you've been getting it from the inside, using everything as a reminder of awareness, everything as a reminder of of what. Um, Not just what's happening, but how you're relating to what's happening. And you may also have the sense that no matter where or how far you have wandered, no matter what drama that you may have gotten into, that that moment that you so-called wake up to where you are, whatever wherever you've been, it becomes a little bit more workable, a little less... Less, um, less stress it, when we wake up, when we know even if we've been just dragged through the mud <clears throat> everything starts to seem more workable our eyes are, are open could not be more simple but sometimes difficult to remember it's probably more clear to you after these days, I'm talking this way because I was reflecting today that you've now been here for a week. Where is that week? It's amazing. And the amazing thing is we've really never left the present. We've always been right here, right now. But this whole show has happened over the last week. I don't want to try to explain that right now, but but nothing's really happened. And yet, so much has happened. But You've probably really seen the difference between the moments when you are... um, the feeling tone and the effect, the difference between when you are uh, really absorbed or lost in thought, when... Ajahn Buddhadasa was asked to explain the world. uh, He was an old monk, been teaching for 50, 60 years, and when asked to explain the the world, he sized it up in in three words. Lost in thought. He could have said so many things, but he said lost in thought. But you now probably have a sense of the difference between what it's like to be awake and what it's like to be lost in thought. And that... In some ways, that difference becomes even more um, dramatic. It's like when, when, when our hearts are really open. Rather than someone saying something that's unkind, rather than having it less effect, I actually think the more open we are, the more effect it has. I think that we can, we are meant to be tender and to be hurt. It's really a problem when we don't feel any, don't have a reaction the same we s- see that there's a bigger distinction. We start to notice that difference between being absorbed and being awake. And perhaps most importantly you have probably sensed the difference between the simplicity of what's happening in any moment and what it is our mind does with it. How how, in fact, there are just these six experiences that are going around and around, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, consciousness of the arising. And yet, out of that, um, this phantasmagorical show takes place. And to begin to see the difference between seeing and that story, hearing in the story, smelling the story. Not to stop telling the story, not to stop seeing, talking about what we see, but the difference between that bare sense experience and that um, drama that plays through our minds. Of all the sense experiences, though, it is most difficult, most challenging to really notice what our mind is doing. That's the the most elusive, and that's why I wanted to speak about Papancha tonight. Because it's really our thoughts about things, when unnoticed, uh, so much complicates our life, complicates our experience, prevents us from seeing the simplicity, the suchness of, yeah, there's just contact right now. There's just boredom. There's just interest. There's just, why doesn't he get on with it? There's just, (laughs) I hope he feels okay. 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 But as Dujim Rinpoche reminds us, there is, right now, as you sit here, after your last thought has ceased and before the next arises, there is a, what he calls a vivid clarity. Without anything to see, just a vivid clarity, a, a freshness, a wakefulness, that is never altered even by a hair. He says, this is awareness. But we don't stay simply aware. Doesn't a thought suddenly arise? another thought arise. And if th- this thought is recognized when it arises, it's recognized as just being an expression of that awareness and it's liberated. But when that thought goes unnoticed, it will spread out into ordinary thinking. This is called, as he says, the chain of delusion. This is where we incarnate into that fantastic world of papancha, of the proliferation of thought. It is amazing when we simply start to take an interest and be curious about not to try to delete again, not to try to get rid of, not to create a whole identity about the one who's going to conquer thinking, but when we take an interest in how this thinking process works how this compulsion to think works. So already you've probably sensed that you're sitting here. You're invited to bring your mind gently into your body just to keep oriented toward that sense of presence and completely without any prompting at all, that, that flywheel, that waterfall of thinking appears across the mirror of your mind. And not just a few thoughts, but literally thousands upon thousands of thoughts unbidden come into our minds. And I know most of you have heard this uh, statistic before—that some study that was done that we have something like sixty-five thousand thoughts a day, and that ninety-five percent are repeats from the day before. (laughs) Which is always wonder how they got that, but. <clears throat> but how that simple process of um, of being present and opening our different doors of perception how at least the way it's described in the teachings how they're at the contact of all these different doors of perception there is just the for example, with the ear. There's the, the ear, which is called the base of hearing. There is the sound, and then there's the consciousness. Those three things arising together spontaneously. No hearer, no one behind that who's hearing, but there's this hearing. This is the contact. This, it produces a, a little feeling, as Heather so beautifully introduced this morning, of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant or unpleasant based on the conditioned response to that sound, and immediately following is a, depending on if it's pleasant or unpleasant, there's either the liking or the disliking or the denying or spacing out. And because that little fleeting reaction in the mind of liking and disliking and spacing out produces a little charge, a little You could say a little tension. And that tension, as whenever there's tension, it has to be released. And when it's released, it it releases this this perception, thoughts about whatever it is that's been experienced. And, of course, when this is noticed, the thoughts liberate themselves. The perceptions are known, and they don't make an imprint. They're like castles in the sky but when unnoticed, they, they go off. And our whole sense of ourselves, at least the sense of our imaginary selves, gets created in this, in this little process, this little process that we will elaborate on as the retreat goes on. But somehow, miraculously, those little fleeting reactions and the thoughts that follow, the 65,000 thoughts, somehow get culled together into a... A little narrative called the How am I doing story you know it 's all about me as i 'm sure um, we've been talking about on the on the retreat, and usually there is something of that story that is um, because it 's tethered to these little ideas, these little fleeting ideas already somewhat removed from just the bare reality, from nature in a way, even though it is the nature, it is an expression of nature. But when misidentified with or misperceived as as real, as me, as mine, it creates this feeling you probably recognize, of there's and then the story gets shaped around that feeling that there's something not quite right here. And there's not something quite right with me and then of course once we have taken birth into that feeling and thought stream of there's something wrong in that in that internal world that internal drama there is this there comes that desire i want to i want to be okay and before you know it our mind has spawned the great plan the great plan to be uh, to come back to ourselves and when i say this i think of the the metaphor that's often used in the Hindu tradition of, of the wave. This wave of a thought called me arises on the ocean, in the great ocean of existence, of nature, but the, because of the delusion inherent in the misperception of these different thoughts, that wave innocently, not to be judged, not to be rejected, but that wave innocently believes that it's the one wave, as you may experience yourself even as you hear this, that one wave who's somehow gotten separated from the ocean, and then has to find his or her way back, and by all dramatic means, long retreats, (laughs) mountaintops in Tibet, and that's the spiritual expression of it, but Often that search, as we've been describing, takes the shape of of misinformation, misplaced faith in things that will not give any kind of relief. This drama that plays through our mind in its various forms is called papancha. I, I also translated papancha as why I can't be happy now. What The the Buddha translated it to a certain degree as complication. And he says, I teach to those who want to be uncomplicated. I do not... uh, He taught to everyone, but if someone wants complication, this teaching is not for them. This is about those who incline toward non-complication. But this is some of the more elaborate definitions of papancha and maybe you'll get a, a sense of it on simple one the unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagined experiences or objects two the propensity this one's kind of bizarre propensity of the worldlings imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. (laughs) Now that effusion, that proliferation is often the place that we go to find our self-definition, to find whether or not we're okay, to find Uh, a way to define ourselves. And when I say that, I look at you, and I see that not one person here, as you sit here being yourself, I don't mean being the idea of yourself, but just being here. I see that whatever you say about yourself to yourself could never capture the, your, your nature, your just natural sense of being. And that most of those thoughts in that imaginary, illusory version of ourselves are um, their distortions, outright lies, confused, limited and obscure to such a degree. And this is the sad part of the part that ideally will become a compassion gate for each of us obscures that essential, um, it's hard to use language in this case, that essential okayness of you before your, before your after your last thought and before your next one, and as I say this to you and kind of just join with you here in the room, just being ourselves, I I feel as though I'm I'm giving a transmission, and this is I call it my Molly transmission. Transmission. Some of you know I have a four and a half year old daughter named Molly, and Molly is someone who, I, who I've watched emerge from in that mysterious way that, uh, that all little people, if you watch them, they, they emerge and they emerge as just so uniquely a different expression of life than any other being as each of you, as I see you, are such a unique expression of life. Not one of you could be different than the way you are nor should be different than the way you are that each has been out of that that great openness that buddha nature that natural clarity and openness we we can talk about it all different ways has it's expressed itself it's it's refracted through the form of each each of your forms in such a unique and special way through your rich histories and your your pains and your joys and your cultural backgrounds and your gender and your religion and all of those things have formed uh, the only expression that you could be. And that's one thing. Us are what I call our Molly nature. Just Molly is just so Molly. and Nor would I want her to be any other thing but she hasn't gotten to that place where she's busy wanting to be somebody else, except for in moments. She sees the picture in the little book of fairies, and she says, I like that one. She's got very curly hair, and she likes the one with the straight hair, which is interesting to watch that happen. But slowly I can see that she will likely start to take birth as the one who's somehow not enough. And she's going to think that having straight hair is going to make her happy. We've all just, <laughs> we've all just gone to town on these, um, these notions. And this is the activity of papancha. The Buddha talked about three kinds of papancha, three kinds of, of complicating tendencies of mind. And they all, all of them, create a... That um, that virtual identity. They all create a picture of there being some kind of abiding person called me that seems to that everything wraps around, that everything is referenced to. And the the three kinds of papancha. The first one is called tanha papancha, and we've been talking about grasping and condemning, and tanha includes both sides of grasping and condemning. The second kind is called uh, diti papancha, which is diti means views, and this usually refers to the personality view or the self view, and all that we form around around that. Which I kind of jumped the gun at the beginning of my talk. <clears throat> and then the third kind of papancha is called mana papancha, and Carol spoke a little bit about this. Mana is the word for conceit or pride. And she spoke about it a little bit when there was a question about selfing. So, Tanha Papancha is that proliferation of ideas, of stories about far flung possibilities, places I need to go, things I need to do, things I need to have, um, experiences that I, I want and also experiences that I absolutely do not want, places I need to get rid of, people I need to get rid of, situations that need to be changed, etc., etc. And this is the compulsion to be totally caught up in that and remembering that it all starts with this seed contact with one of these six experiences in this unfolding present, and this whole thing that takes place in our mind is, is rather invisible. Yet, if it's followed, it leads us into just end, both endless worlds in our mind and actual physical activity. Mind, body follows these mental impulses to the extent that it, it can lead us into wild places. I debated about telling this story because there are people here who know the, know about this. Um, but there was a yogi who was in the middle of a three-month practice period uh, back in the 70s, late 70s, who was a very, very z- uh, zealous yogi and um, really into the practice and really committed to this long practice period. And in the middle of that practice period, an old kilesa, an old uh, defilement, or sankhara, some old conditioning arose in, in their mind. that had to do with, um, and it started with a thought, because it became the time of year, which was the near Thanksgiving, became the time of year when, for that person's entire lifetime, there had been the annual... Um, Football game between the two the rival states, and this yogi had the the brilliant idea of figuring figuring out a way to watch the the game. <laughs> Meanwhile, they were two plus months into a three month retreat, and the yogi decided to use this as as um, Part of their practice, and took it to interviews, and had several interviews, and it and this was uh, this person got completely carried away by this, and and it turned out that there was one day where somebody was overhearing the interview, and this this person who was overhearing the interview uh, had come out of the the silent practice because their partner, who was on retreat and was pregnant, had gotten ill in some way, and so they had been taking care of their partner, but they overheard and wrote a note to the yogi saying that they would drive them to to the football game. (laughs) Of course, in silence. (laughs) And you have to remember this started with a thought. Wouldn't it be nice to watch the football game? and so what proliferated and then ensued in actuality was a 40-mile drive to a motel room in one of the towns and then the watching of that football game and of course that that having incarnated having, having taken birth in that lifetime of the of the as though that that sense of oneself that one needs to have that experience, they, that person was carried along through that lifetime until they got what they wanted. And then what happened, as it often does to someone who gets what they want, there is that moment where the pleasure of that, that has come on the basis of the cessation or the falling away of the, of the demand and the desire the pleasure that comes starts to fade and in this case the, the football game the, the home team lost <laughs> and, the, and so the, the yogi is sitting there kind of awkward and embarrassed and somewhat self-conscious which is the next birth and and normally at that moment when that the desire when the pleasure fades and then what does the mind usually do it picks up another desire, <laughs> but in this case, it became the complete unsatisfactoriness of that. The unreliability of that pleasure became the seed of you know, of, of um, a person got very ze- much more um, into the practice after that. All started with a simple contact at one of the doors of perception, the mind door, and that yogi was me. Sometimes it's more. um, Sometimes we can take ourselves on just painful rides in our mind, and sometimes it's it's kind of funny, and sometimes kind of poignant, where where we create. And this is really this this kind of humor poignancy is captured beautifully in this poem by George um, Bilger called Unwise Purchases. They sit around the house, not doing much of anything, the boxed set of complete works of Verdi unopened, the complete Proust unread, the French-cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French-cut silk shirt. (laughs) The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high rise down the road. (laughs) And which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining the crab nebula. The 30 day course in Spanish whose text I never opened whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with the sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. (laughs) I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute but I'll never know. Suddenly I realized I have constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner. Near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set.
1: <laughs>
0: a woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of coming has always dreamed of meeting. And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. So, this proliferation, this tanha proliferation, often is born of the sense that I'm not enough and I need something to be happy. As Sri Nisargadatta puts it, as long as we believe we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as, there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of all practice is to reach a point where this conviction instead of being only verbal, is based on actual and ever-present experience. Which experience? The experience of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, or having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in nothingness, in emptiness of all content, or emptiness with all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. So again, the second kind, of, that's tanha-papancha. The second kind of papancha is called ditti-papancha. Uh, ditti meaning views, and the and often refers to what the Buddha called sakya-ditti, or self-view. And it's any kind of view that we have about ourselves uh, that creates this notion of there being behind this this um, changing flow of, of mental and physical phenomena, mental impulses and physical responses, like intention to lift and the lifting, that there's someone behind that, some doer, some uh, powerful agent that creates that kind of misperception, uh, and then gets elaborated upon, because it's an idea, then gets embellished, and it needs to be embellished with, with all kinds of elaboration, to the point where um, we actually believe that we are that one uh, who, um, who we're thinking about. And we tend to each have both um, some kind of, I'll call it core or repeat, often repeated views about ourselves, but it's really the, the endless stories that our mind tells that are spawned from that basic view that somehow there's something wrong, something wrong with me. And I think right now, as I, and again as I sit here with you, I think of the Avatamsaka Sutra, where it says, having no view of self one is always peaceful. And how our views of ourselves so much complicate our reality. Again, just sense what it's like for you, what your direct experience is after your last thought about yourself has ceased and before the next one arises. What is that like? what is that direct experience what is that experience that is not secondhand that's not based on the on memory associations what you've been told what your what your cherished story or idea that may have some reflection in your reality in your past your whatever has been your strong identity, what happens? What is your direct experience? After your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises. As the teacher Punjaji put it, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Remove them by finding or remaining at the source of these thoughts, these I thoughts. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future, because it will not work. Be attentive only to this moment. When you hold to something other than your true nature, you will be disturbed. By holding attachment to transient things, you declare to yourself again and again that you are not the fullness in which all is. Or as Hafiz cries out in his poem called Stop Being So Religious, what do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past, and often go there to do a strange wail and worship, what is the beginning of happiness? To stop being so religious like that. Now, easier said than done. But this is the opportunity, as we know, to make that that shift from being, from instantly and chronically believing these narratives that both operate visibly as the, as the discursive thinking and physically as the felt sense that goes, that, that goes along with that, to begin to see the truth of what those really are, the truth of what the thought is that I'm not good enough or I'm not, I'm not smart enough or I'm, I'm too different from everyone else, I'm too tall, too short, too, too much, too little whatever your version is, to begin to see that for what it is. We are able to notice once we turn toward awareness and let that experience be seen. Of course, while we are absorbed in a belief or an idea about ourselves, in a train of proliferation, there's nothing we can do until we, until we begin to look at that. But when you look at it, look at what it's really made of. Whatever your version is of "I'm not okay the way I am," that self-view, and look at what is that actually? First of all, as Byron Katie often says, is it true? Ask yourself, is it true? How do you know? It's unnoticed, it becomes the gospel truth. Noticed, we begin to see, I am not good enough, whatever version is. We see that it's made up of these five words. I am not good enough. It's made up of enough. We get rid of that for a moment. And then we're left with, I'm not good we hang out with I'm not good for a moment. That feels really crummy. It feels terrible. And then we remove the good from the sentence and we say I'm not. Already we're feeling better. <laughs> and then we remove the not and we're left with I am. And then we for experimentation's sake, we really try to see what this whole view is made of, and we remove the am and we're left with the sense of I. Now, I, when noticed, whatever flavor, it's not a problem. It's when it goes unnoticed that then it spreads out. so let's just hang out with that sense of I. Just feel I. And then just for the sake of our experiment to see what that view really is, just for a moment, and you can always pick it up again, remove the eye and see what's there. All we did for a moment was suspend our... We went to the root of that thought. There is that opportunity to, in the mindfulness of thinking, mindfulness of this kind of papancha around our self, our self-view, there is that possibility, moment to moment, of cutting through that um, dream version of yourself and returning again in each instant of mindfulness to your molliness. Emerson put it this way, What you are shouts so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. And Rumi says... Live in the nowhere where you came from. Even though you have an address here, you have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances, how high and how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller, checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. So easy to overlook that this preciousness of our nature as we sit here and take as the, as the truth that. That imaginary version that is sometimes useful as an approximation of who we are, but is more often than not an insult or inaccurate. And I think of Henry Audubon, where he said, If there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. <laughs> but ditti papancha is often the the activity the compulsion to become somebody based on these these ideas these views and then the endless strategies and the endless hope to become uh, the great yogi and the even to become liberated can be a kind of blinding um, forgetfulness that has the impact of, of forcing us out of our seat, lifting, going out of ourselves in search into an imagined future that never arrives. Losing contact with the fact that there is only the present, only an unfolding present. And in our minds, we can so easily hold ourselves hostage to that fact that fantasy of where where we're going. The good news, we can begin to notice our planning mind, our projecting mind, our becoming mind, and also to have some humor about that need to become somebody. This little Hasidic story captures the, the spirit of this. One day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the the ark, fell to his knees and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. (laughs) The shamus, or the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody at which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, Look who thinks he's nobody. (laughs) Nagarjuna, in his poem called Someone, that's really a kind of practice poem. Blocked by confusion, I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds and world impacts on my sensitive being or soul. Personality creates self-consciousness, just as attention, the eye, and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world. It leads to experience I crave to have and avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, and selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free to be no one. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling, body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anguish emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive, but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops... Through practicing insight, impulsive acts will cease. By stopping this, that won't happen. Anguish will end. This is really the function of mindful awareness, to end anguish moment by moment. Last but not least is the kind of papancha that uh, Carol spoke a little bit about called, uh, she spoke about mana which is conceit and um, mana papancha is the proliferation of thoughts, of pride the pride of putting ourselves above others like my practice is really good and yours is less good my I can sit longer than you I can I walk slower than you, whatever version is. My, my mind is more empty than yours. <laughs> this is the mind that has absolutely no shame. It will create an identity around anything, anything to repair or elevate the sense of oneself. And I, I say this a little bit uh, in a lighthearted way but this is actually this kind of sukha that comes with, with the feeling of being better than is really dukkha. It is such an illusion. It, is, it creates such a veil of separation, and it's so much sha- is shadowed by insufficiency and not enoughness, and it can just loop around and around. There is no end to this unless it's recognized for what it is so this is the mind that says i am better than this is the mind that says i'm equal to this is the mind that says i'm less than and i found it, upandita said i had a very interesting take on this he said that there's actually a, a sense of 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 inflation that comes even with the with the feeling of being less than i'm less than but it doesn't bother me. I'm equal to, and that's fine. All of it is delusion, but either way, there is this sense of of a formation of an identity and an embellishment of that that has nothing to do with the with the reality of what and who we are. And the especially the tendency of the of manapapancha, this this comparing mind to take the shape of feeling less than is is so, um, is so tormenting and you know we know the, the ways that um, there's a phenomenon that I see in terms of the putting ourselves above a phenomenon I see a lot in the in the Dharma circles is the the tendency to create. Um, pride and conceit, pride and conceit are the word mana, to create pride and conceit around who you sit with. I call it inflation by association. <laughs> and you know, people come up to me quite often and say, I, I sat with this teacher, I sat with that teacher, or I've been to this many retreats or that many retreats with this teacher. And it's amazing how the, the whole system kind of puffs up around just ha- knowing someone. And it was—I I found this interesting because I will often feel—I'll um, often feel pride when I see through this in other people, <laughs> which is just more de, more delusion. But, <laughs> but this evening, uh, uh, Marcella, who's the the um, kitchen uh, coordinator for the whole retreat center, um, she came in and started waxing about my grandmother, who was an amazing woman, and she's going on and on about my grandmother, who lived and who lived to 105 just before her 105th birthday and worked seven days a week until just before her 104th birthday, and she's going on and on, and I'm feeling myself getting... Of course, I've been thinking about this topic all day, but just, just to see how our mind does that. I don't think one person does it any less than any... any more, any less than anyone else. And I think I can speak for, for all people who take this seat as a... As a uh, a Dharma teacher, that um, that there is that there is that dance of conceit and pride. Not so much the. It's much more the um, the much more the putting oneself equal to or below. Then not so often the. I, I'm sure there's the other side too, but at least because I started with some in, incredible models as teachers when I started, you know, 20 almost 23, 24 years ago. I had a lot of mana papancha, of thinking I was somehow less than. The good news is, we can make that part of our practice, another object of mindfulness. And the knowing of it, turning to awareness, sensing how we're, we're relating to that, it becomes completely workable. It becomes just mana papancha. It becomes just another moment of selfing that to be noticed. And so in the moment of awareness, selfing in whatever form, selfing around some strong desire, selfing around some view about yourself, once it's known, it's it's recognized as selfless. There's nothing to it. There's nothing there except a, a, a package of empty ephemeral views and thoughts that we can't even find when we look for them. It's when they go unnoticed that we fall into delusion and incarnate, take birth into those world, those mind worlds. So I leave you in terms of mana papancha with one of my favorite little quotes from stories from um, Ed Brown from the author of the Tassahara bread books. When I first started cooking at Tasahara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick, the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix and then blobbed the dough and spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter, and it popped open. Then you twisted the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on the pan, and baked them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. (laughs) Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing, the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like, compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? Leave it to beaver. People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another. But to me, these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally, one came a shifting in, one day it came a shifting into place, an awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh, my word, I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were weedy, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, as Rilke's sonnet proclaims. They were incomparably alive, present, vibrant, in fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, these moments when you realize that your life is just fine as it is, thank you. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient, Trying to produce a biscuit, a life, with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so frustrating. Then savoring, actually tasting the present moment of experience. How much more complex, multifaceted, how unfathomable, a thought, a feeling, ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. As Zen students, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew what a bisquick, zen student look like calm buoyant cheerful energetic deep profound our motto as one of my friends says was looking good (laughs) we've all done it tried to attain perfection tried to look good as a husband a wife or parent well to heck with it i say wake up and smell the coffee how about savoring some good old home cooking the biscuits today So I just want to leave you with a brief poem from Derek Walcott called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself, Give wine, give bread. Give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. All beings come to know the workings of their minds and may their hearts be at peace. Thank you for your long attention. You have about 25 minutes for walking. Please continue.